Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank You for uh, those encouraging words from Scripture. I pray that You would, uh, as a result of Your Word being read and also preached, that uh, You would keep our hearts from being troubled and help us to trust in You, help us to trust in Christ our Savior. We ask in His name. Amen. We live in troubling times. Uh, Many of us, as a result, live troubled lives. But Jesus said in John 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. If we're going to uh, avoid letting our hearts be troubled, we should have some idea as to what is troubling us. There was a study that was uh, produced and published this past February, and it said that most Americans are stressed and troubled about money. And uh, the stress about money was closely followed by the stress of work. 64% of Americans, according to this study, are stressed by money. 60% are stressed by work. And by work, I assume they mean the lack of work. As, uh, as I've heard that 95 million Americans who would normally be in the workforce are out of work. So that would certainly be stressful. Lower down the list, the third highest uh, stress producer is family responsibilities. And so 47% are stressed by that. And then health concerns rank fourth on the list at 46% of Americans being stressed by the health concerns. The study is not real interesting to me. Uh, It did not get interesting until... um, it came to the part of its findings where it talked about how Americans deal with stress in their lives. And this certainly was, uh, was uh, very interesting to me. The top way that Americans deal with stress in their lives is by listening to music. Secondly, uh, people deal with stress in their life by exercising. And then thirdly, they deal with stress in their life by watching television. In other words, Americans like to take a a little mental vacation from their troubles. But then the the question then is, what happens when you turn off the radio or for our young people, turn off the phones with the music or turn off the TV or get home from the gym? What we find is the stress and the trouble is still there. The authors of the study recommended seeking emotional support from family and friends. They said this is the chief way that you can help uh, avoid the stress or deal with the stress that you have in your life. But there's one problem uh, with talking with friends or family about things like your, your struggles with finances or, or things like that. 
Um, in fact, the, the authors of this study acknowledge that it's very difficult to talk about these subjects. It makes us feel uncomfortable. In other words, and they did not say this, this is my own little commentary, it is stressful to open up to others about our troubles. And so it just adds to the stress uh, that we are feeling. I came away from reading this study with the idea that the world does not have very effective and meaningful ways of dealing with trouble and stress. But of course, our Lord Jesus has given us effective and meaningful ways of dealing with stress. The greatest help that He gives us in dealing with stress is being with us forever. If Jesus is always with us, and He has all things well in His control, how can we let stress and trouble overwhelm us? Let's dig into the passage to see what He says. We looked in depth at verse 15 last week. Uh, and Jesus actually repeats in a couple of a couple of times in our passage the content of verse 15. So what we're going to do is just jump right into verse 16. Jesus told the eleven disciples that he would ask the Father to give them another helper who would be with them forever. The reason he's telling them this is because of what he said in verse one: "Do not let your hearts be troubled." Remember, Jesus is uh, about to be betrayed with only a few, within a few hours of saying this. And then a few hours more, He's going to be nailed to the cross. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to remain in the grave for three days. This is going to be very stressful for the disciples. And Jesus has been telling them, I'm going away. So they're stressed. And so He's saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. And so He is teaching them uh, things that He has done for them and that He is doing for them that will allow them to uh, keep from having their hearts be troubled. So, um, right here in verse 16, He told the eleven disciples that He would ask the Father to give them another Helper who would be with them forever. Notice this word, another here in verse 16, where he says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper. First of all, this teaches us that Jesus is a Helper. He's our Helper. Uh, without Him, uh, salvation would not be possible. Without Him, a relationship with God would not be possible. Without Him, we would still be in our sins. He is certainly our Helper. And if He were not our Helper, then Jesus could not speak of sending another Helper. And uh, the, the Greek word here um, is the Greek word paraclete. In its most defi basic definition, it means one who is called alongside. And... Um, the idea here is that he's sending another helper who's like him, who will uh, continue on his work. Christ is going to die on the cross, he's going to be raised from the grave, and then he's going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, to
to um, to uh, bring all the benefits of His work on the cross to us. So, uh, Jesus is saying that He's going to ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit to be with His disciples. This idea of the paraclete uh, means one who is called alongside. So Jesus is telling His disciples that uh, the Holy Spirit will forever be beside His disciples. But He qualifies it. He's not simply beside His disciples. But in verse 17, He says that the Holy Spirit will be with you and in you. So verse 17, Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot see, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. So no matter where you are, no matter what is happening to you, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the helper, will be with you because He is in you. Let me be very clear about this because there's so much confusion about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Do you see at the, verse, at the end of verse 16 where Jesus says that He will be with you forever, the Holy Spirit will be with you forever? The Holy Spirit only comes once into our lives. He does not come and then leave and then come back again and then leave. He's an abiding presence in our life. When you first trust in Christ, He is there. Every moment you live as a Christian, He is there. When you sin against God, He is there. And He is grieved. He will never leave you or forsake you. There are groups of Christians that teach that when, when your spiritual life grows weak, then you need more of the Spirit. But you cannot have more of the Spirit. He's a person. And as Ray Stedman says, persons do not come in chunks or bits and pieces. He comes as a whole person and abides with you forever. Now I'm well aware of Ephesians 5 where Paul calls us to be filled with the Spirit. And I'll deal with this as we continue to move through John uh, 14 through 16. But for the time being, I want you to understand that the Holy Spirit is not fickle toward us. He will never leave you or forsake you no matter what. What will He be doing as He is with you? Jesus calls Him in verse uh, 17, the Spirit of truth. And this will become um, much clearer as we move through chapters uh, 15 and 16. But it's clear here from this passage, from how Jesus is speaking when He speaks about the Holy Spirit, that, um, that the Holy Spirit will reveal more truth about Jesus. That is the Holy Spirit's chief purpose. That's why uh, He's called the Spirit of Truth. Remember that Jesus is grace and truth incarnate. The Holy Spirit, therefore, will open the eyes of our heart 
to help us understand the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. He'll open the eyes of our heart to help us understand the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. He will open the eyes of our heart to understand the spiritual power that we have in Jesus Christ. And I'm paraphrasing from Ephesians chapter 1, um, 17 and 18. In other words, the most important ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to cause our faith in Jesus Christ to grow and to thrive. The Holy Spirit simply carrying forth the ministry of Christ into our lives. Before we move on to verse 18, I want you to notice one more thing about the Holy Spirit in verse 17. Jesus says that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit because the world neither sees Him or knows Him. You see that in verse 17? Only a Christian can receive the Holy Spirit. The world, in other words, non-Christians, they can't receive Him because they don't they're not able to see Him. They don't have spiritual uh, vision. They're, they're, um, they're blind in their, in their sins, as Jesus told Nicodemus. You can't see the kingdom of God. You can't know the things of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, uh, unless you have the Spirit of God. And so, without the Spirit, you're spiritually blind. You cannot receive the Holy Spirit. You cannot see Him even. Uh, as Jesus says, there is a tidal wave of opposition to God in our culture right now. People are trying everything they can do to, to get rid of any visible signs that our country has any kind of Christian foundations. And we shouldn't be surprised that, that there's this movement. Because the world cannot see the Holy Spirit. The world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. It does not have the Holy Spirit. I think that this move to get rid of God in our culture is really God's judgment against our culture. I think that God is using uh, the wicked intentions of our godless culture against our culture. In other words... He's leaving our culture to itself and He's using the hatred of our culture, the hatred toward God that our culture has. He's using that to remove Him from our culture and that's His judgment against us. It's a little convoluted. That, sorry, that's the way my mind thinks. But do you understand? I think God is using the momentum of our hatred against us as part of His judgment in removing Himself from our culture. But by saying that, we must not think that God will leave us. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, I will not leave you as orphans. So while God is hidden to the world, God is with us as our Father. He's not going to leave us as orphans. And we are with Him as His children. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't say that God will, will treat us as children and welcome us into His home, but rather He uses this phrase, I will not leave you as orphans. Why does He use this? Why does He call to mind the imagery of the orphans when He's communicating to us about our, our sonship as children of God? I think what Jesus is doing by bringing up the idea of orphans 
is to say that He will give us what an orphan needs. But who's an orphan? An orphan is, is one without parents. Therefore, an orphan is very needy and helpless. And so he brings up this idea of, of orphans, saying, I will not leave you as orphans, to emphasize that He is going to protect us, that He is going to provide for us, that He is going to guide us, and that He's going to give an orphan what the orphan needs most of all. And that is unconditional love. In other words, God is always with you, supplying everything you need for life and for godliness. Wow! What reason do we have to let our hearts be carried away by our troubles? He will not leave us as orphans. But that's not all. He has also given us assurance of His love. Look at verses 20 and 21. In that day, you will know that I am in the, my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. He says in verse 20, In that day you will know in other words, you will know that Jesus is the Son of God and you will know that you are bound together with the Father and the Son. I want you to look closely at verse 20. Respectfully, verse 20 makes no sense to me in my mind. Jesus, here's what it's saying. Jesus is in the Father and you are in Jesus, and then Jesus is in you. How can you be in Jesus and He be in you? That doesn't make sense in my mind. But the point of what Jesus is saying makes perfect sense to the heart of one who loves Jesus. Even if it doesn't make sense in our mind. Because what Jesus is talking about is the deep personal intimacy that He has with us and we have with Him. That we have with the Father and that the Father has with us. D.A. Carson says that the knowledge Jesus is speaking about is not learned in theology books. That it's a deep personal knowledge not learned in the mind but grasped in the heart by love. We are in the Father. And Jesus is in the Father. And the, Jesus is in us. In verse 21, Jesus is talking about our assurance of His love. Verse 21, it doesn't sound like He's talking about assurance in verse 21 on the face of it, but I'll try and explain what He's saying. He says, Whoever has My commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves Me. This is basically... Uh, the same uh, thing that Jesus was saying in verse 15 that we looked at last week. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. His assurance of love will cause our love for him to grow. As we know that he loves us, and that we're in him, and that 
and that uh, Jesus is in the Father, but He's also in us. And we understand that and grasp it by love. Our love is going to grow even more. And our love will then issue forth in obedience to Him. Loving Jesus is not the same thing as obeying Him. I want to be clear about that. Our love for Jesus precedes our obedience. Our love for Jesus gives rise to our obedience. We don't, um, we don't fall in love with Jesus by obeying Him. Um, but rather, when we love Him, when we know Him, the, the, the response of a heart that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who has been changed by the Holy Spirit, who is being taught by the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the natural response will be obedience. Amen. So our obedience gives rise then... Um, to, I'm sorry, our love for Jesus gives rise to our obedience. And then our obedience gives rise to greater assurance that our love for Him is true. Obedience is very burdensome and tiresome when you do not love Jesus. I've met so many uh, Roman Catholics who have said, I've given up on the church. I don't want um, to have anything to do with God. And often you can hear a sense of frustration. But their theology teaches that you, um, that you get salvation through your obedience. And they have it turned upside down. And so obedience is very burdensome and tiresome when you do not love Jesus. But when we love Jesus, obedience is invigorating. And it's our great joy. Do you remember how Jacob uh, had to work for his uncle for seven long years in order to earn the right to marry uh, Rachel? But in Genesis 29 verse 20 it says, So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. And that's the way our obedience to Christ works. We love Him so it's our joy to obey Him. That's why I said last week that if you despise obedience, then your love for Christ is defective at best. And maybe not existent at all. All Christian morality begins with love and is carried forth by the power of love. That's why the Bible says that love fulfills the law. Obedience to Christ builds our assurance that our love is genuine. There's a movement in Christian circles to de-emphasize obedience. I mentioned it last week. But that has the unintended effect of hurting people's sense of, uh, of assurance. Without the measuring stick of obedience, assurance becomes purely subjective. There's a story I heard of a man named Sam Jones. He lived in Philadelphia. And he had no assurance of salvation. He was a committed Christian, but he really struggled with whether, um, with whether he was really saved. He just had no assurance whatsoever. He would ask himself, am I sincere enough? Or did he really love Jesus? 
Or did he simply want to escape from hell? And these questions would just plague him. They would torment him. It would squash his hope. It would crush his joy. It would give him even greater doubts about his, uh, his salvation, whether it was real. But one night, he had a dream. And in his dream, an angel invited him up into heaven and took him right to the book of life, opened up the book of life and pointed there in the book of life. And he saw his name, Samuel Jones, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was so relieved. The next day he was full of joy. He prayed with great confidence. He worshipped and sang praises in his heart all day long. And when he arrived at home, at home that evening, he walked out to, a, to the mailbox to get his mail and he had a, a hymn of praise on his lips. But as he flipped through the mail, his assurance and joy immediately drained out of him. You see, the mailman uh, often mistakenly gave Sam Jones his neighbor's mail because his neighbor down the street was also named Samuel Jones. And he began to wonder, was it my name or my neighbor's name that I saw in the book of life? And so... Uh, this idea of, of, of obedience can become so subjective. I'm sorry, this, this matter of assurance can become so subjective without the yardstick, the measuring stick of obedience. Verses 22 through 24 serves as a reminder of what I just preached, the disciples being the disciples that we've come to know in the Gospels uh, were easily confused. And so Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So Jesus then repeated what he had said earlier. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So what he's saying here in verse 22 is the more you love Him, the more you're going to obey Him. And the more you obey Him, the more assurance that you will have that God is dwelling with you. As he said... Um, uh, anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. This is incredible. God's not only going to be with you and in you by the Holy Spirit, but he is also going to make his dwelling with you. Your heart is going to be God's home. realize that then that he's there in you that made his home with you what God's going to do is he's going to reveal more of himself to you because that's the job of the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth he's going to reveal Jesus uh, more and more to you 
You're going to grow in your uh, love for Jesus. And what happens when you grow in your love for Jesus? You're going to obey Him more. And so then, as you obey Him more, your assurance grows even more. And as your assurance grows, you're going to love Him more. And as you love Him more, you're going to obey Him even more. You know, I often hear people describe the Christian life like a toilet flushing. Um... They, they think, well, the, the, the Christian life is, well, you're happy until you become a Christian. And then life swirls downward and inward from there. This idea of submission to God, of obedience, of you uh, breaking relationships with unhealthy relationships with, uh, with non-Christians, it just seems like a toilet flushing to many people. But the Christian life is exactly the opposite. The more you love Him, the more you obey Him. The more you obey Him, the more your assurance grows. The more your assurance grows, the more He reveals Himself to you. The more He reveals Himself to you, the more you love Him. And it just continually spirals upward and outward. And that is the picture that Jesus is giving us. So my question to you is, do you love Him? Are you obeying Him? Are you trusting Him when the difficulties of life come crashing on your, on your life like waves, like tidal waves, one after another? Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God Believe also in me. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for uh, this Word from our Lord Jesus. Uh, I know it was a little more difficult, a little more um, hard to understand than other passages of Scripture. But Father, uh, You are giving us a picture of the deep, experiential, intimate love and relationship that You have with Your children. Help us to grasp this in our hearts and love You more as a result. To grow in our obedience, to grow in our assurance that we might also continue to grow in our Lord Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. Our hymn of response, uh, Come Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove, we'll sing verses 1 and 2, and then we'll sing verses 3 and 4 after communion.